My name is Glenn Shady. I'm, I'm a visitor, a guest with you all this morning. It's such a good, uh, it's so good for us to, to be here, my family and I. Um, so if you happen to be a guest as well, if it's your first time here, then just know that John is an amazing preacher, and uh, whether you enjoy my message this morning or not, make sure to come back next week to hear the real deal, because it's going to be great. Yeah. Two weeks. That's right. John's taking a good vacation. Two. Come back next week as well. You'll really get the diversity of it all. It'll be great. You know, uh, the last time my family uh, was here, it was uh, summer 2018. We were the VBS missionaries, and so even walking in the door this morning, my eldest said, oh, that's right. They had a big pirate ship over there uh, in the fellowship hall. And, and so, you know, my, my lasting memory, the very last act to say of my time here with you guys that week was you stood me out here and had kids throw paint balloons at me. So, so I, I don't know what you have planned this morning, but I do have a change of clothes in the car. <laughs> now that, that was such a special week. We have so many good memories from that time, and it's really really special for us to be back with here again. Uh, let me just introduce my family to you uh, by way of the, uh, the picture up here. Uh, my wife is sitting right there. Her name's Jessica, um, and uh, we have three daughters. Apparently, first service, I said we have four. Um, I had a cup of coffee between services. I'm doing better now. Our three lovely daughters, um, Elizabeth is 11, going into seventh grade. Hannah is nine, going into fifth, and little Madeline is six going into first grade. Uh, they're in full-time French public school, uh, right alongside all the other French kids, and doing really, really well. We've been there in France for uh, four and a half years now, and uh, you guys have been along us that entire time as our partners, um, helping us with uh, the finances for our ministry, but also with your prayers and encouragement, and we're so grateful uh, for you all. Thank you so much. We love living in Paris. It's a beautiful city, but it is a city with many needs um, and many opportunities. On the next slide, you'll see a, a satellite image. You know, all the, that purple is just resident, building, people. And uh, so in the greater metropolitan area of Paris, you're looking at a population of about 12 million people, which makes it the largest urban uh, area in all of the European Union. And even compared to the rest of France, um, France's total population is 67 million. And so consider this. If you meet somebody who says, I'm from France, you have a one in five chance that they live in Paris. So that's how greatly this city dominates uh, the rest of the culture. And it's not just with people, but in terms of economic, cultural, and political influence, it is truly the, the hub uh, of France in so many important ways. And so that's why we're excited that God's called us there because the opportunities to reach a place like that and see that ripple out into a movement of believers are phenomenal. Um, but the backdrop of Paris uh, makes that difficult. And so this morning, I do want to spend the first half of my message here just talking a little bit about the backdrop of Paris, what it's like uh, to, to work there, some of the opportunities and challenges, um, and some of the ways our ministry has been developing since we were last here a few years ago. And then I also just want to share a word with you um, couple stories about Moses kind of woven together, stories that, that really connect to our work there, but I think are going to connect to your context here um, as well. And so uh, our ministry in France is called French Christian Mission. I do hope you'll um, stop by our table and grab some 
some of our brochures and info like that. There's even little postcards that my wife um, hand-sketched scenes from Paris and such. And as French Christian Mission, our vision is to make Jesus known in the French-speaking world. And so you can see that on the next slide. And uh, this beautiful picture of Paris, this is just a, a picture that Jessica took while she was walking our youngest, Madeline, to the dentist. Um, that's just a part of our life in the city there. And so we feel really connected and, and feel like uh, God is giving us a lot of opportunities to, do, to see this vision uh, made true, to see Jesus or uh, made known among the people there. And so uh, there's three distinct areas of development in our ministry that I want to share with you in how we're trying to make Jesus known. And the first has to do with something big that happened with us in the, in, within the last year. Last September, we made a move. We moved from a pretty central eastern suburb of Paris up to the north in a little town called Lamerlay. And uh, so the next slide, you'll see a picture from the town of Lamerlay. Uh, and this was something we entered 2020, not knowing COVID was on the horizon, really praying about what was going to be next for us. We had helped with a church plant from the fall of 2017 up until that point, but it reached a point where, um, you know, we were ready to go and help in a new way, and they were doing great and really didn't need us distracting the the French people from doing the work in the church. And so we went into 2020 praying, you know, what's next for us? Well, in the midst of that, uh, there's a, a house church in Lamerlay that's been meeting for the last three and a half years or so. And uh, for their first few years of their life, the fact that they survived and were together and were meeting frequently was kind of their, their success. And it was a real blessing. Um, there had been a, an attempt to plant a church in Lamerlay, and it fell apart. And the church planners all moved on to their next project. And these people were left, and they started worshiping together in someone's home. But they've been ready to see what God has next for them. And so then COVID came, and uh, France uh, really shut us down really, uh, really hard there, and their church wasn't able to gather, and they weren't able to get things online. And so they really didn't meet um, for about five months last year. And in the midst of that, we crossed paths, and they asked our family if we were willing to move and help with their house church, and it was the exact answer to prayer we were looking for. So we moved to Lamerlay in September it's a wonderful group of believers um, meeting together, and we are even able to help them get online. The majority of our time with them, we've been worshiping on Zoom, which has been interesting. Um, but we really think that God has big plans for this faithful group of people. And one thing that uh, door that God's opened up for us is this little chapel. If you could read um, the in insignia there, I know it's too small, but it says Wesleyan Chapel, 1892. So it was built in this town in 1892 by the Wesleyans, and uh, the the town purchased it a few years ago, wanting to just uh, keep it as a part of the town's long-standing heritage. But it's just been in the last year and a half or so uh, where the mayor has kind of said, "Hey, this is a church. You know, it's fine that we have it, but I wonder if anybody can use it." And he eventually turned to our little house church and has basically offered it that anytime we want to schedule time to have it. It's ours to have at no cost. And so we now have this little building as a public face to our ministry within the town. Now, it only holds 19 people. It's super tiny. Um, 
before French culture to be able to point down the road and say, yeah, I work with a church. It's that church, that building. That's such an important thing with the way they process church from a Catholic background. And so please pray for this group of believers in Lamerlay that we can shine a light throughout this northern um, uh, suburban region of Paris um, using things like the blessing of this chapel to do so. Another area of huge and surprising development in our ministry has to do with a ministry called Bible Brunch. Pretty quickly after we were with you guys in 2018, we got into the fall, and we just really took notice that our kids, along with some of the other missionary family kids, didn't really have anybody directly feeding them and feeding their faith life outside of their parents. And we really felt like it was important that these kids, whose heart language is English, be fed in their heart language in at least one facet of their lives, And so we started inviting missionary families over for an English language um, Bible study time for their kids. And we did it in the morning, and I made homemade donuts to try to coerce the kids to always come back. And uh, we called it Bible Brunch. Then COVID came, and again, they shut us down so hard, we knew we weren't going to be able to meet together. And we said, well, let's try doing it online, and hopefully this thing will survive. Well, We were wrong. It didn't just survive. It grew in really amazing ways. And so we went into this past school year saying, we really, really hope this group can meet every other week. Well, because all the kids' activities were canceled and we were online, we met weekly. We said, we really, really hope we can get a couple more families on top of our four or five. Well, because it was online and no longer geographically tied, we ended the school year with a network of 10 families and about 30 kids. And um, we'd looked at this and said, we hope someday, way down the road, we can have a French gathering on top of this one in Paris, and maybe God will do something else. Well, we enter this fall because of how it grew via Zoom this past year with plans for having two English gatherings in Paris, one French gathering, and another uh, gathering in Strasbourg, which is three and a half hours away, because a family there started logging in. And they want us to help them start a group. And so you may not have heard this much over the last year. Praise God for COVID. Because it became a huge blessing to our children's ministry. Pray for these kids, both the third culture kids like ours, uh, but also the French French kids that we now are going to be able to reach more with the French um, iteration of this ministry as we're moving forward. Um, Please pray for Bible Brunch. And then finally... Pray for a sweet family, um, the Guffies. There's Travis and Rochelle and their little baby, Ezra. Um, This is actually a really special day for us. We began a partnership with Team Expansion back in the spring of of 2018. And um, that partnership was designed that we would work with them to build a, a functioning team of people in Paris who are there to make disciples and see those disciples making disciples. And that's been the vision uh, for the last three and a half or three plus years or so. Well, Travis and Rochelle are our first teammates joining us through Team Expansion, and they fly out today. And so please pray for Travis and Rochelle that it's the beginning of a a wonderful journey for them, going to language school, transitioning to French culture, and then um, working alongside us um, to help, again, see disciples making disciples. And so we're so excited about the the door that God has opened for that. 
and we hope that they're just the first of uh, multiple teammates to come to help us tackle the big city of Paris and the great country of France and all of its needs and opportunities. And so to lead into my message, I want to give you some categories for thinking about ministry in Paris. Whether we were, uh, we would be planning, um, you know, a, a big uh, church gathering like your, um, what's happening on the 29th? I'm forgetting. What's that? Yes, the English is hard. Um, your big picnic or anything like that, even if it's a social gathering like that, or if we're trying to uh, do worship services, or if we're trying to do Bible studies, these three categories influence and affect every layer of ministry that we do. So the first thing you need to think about with doing ministry in Paris is that Paris is urban. And I already touched on this, 12 million people, largest urban center in uh, the European Union. And this touches us in really, really practical ways. Like, for example, in the center of Paris, um, you're looking at 55,000 people per square mile. And as you get out even further to where we're at, it's still more densely populated um, than anywhere here, um, especially in areas like Rush or like Bluffton, Indiana, where I grew up. And so just practically speaking, we would love to have a church family as large as your church family, but we will never have a building like your building. Um, There is no space, and I don't have tens of millions of dollars. And so um, in an urban environment like Paris, we have to think about how do you gather people and network them in different and unique ways. And that's why we're excited to join a house church, because we think that house churches and small unit core churches and multiplying those out are the way to accomplish that. Another category that affects every level of ministry for us is uh, Paris is a global city. You know, we initially felt this draw to France, this calling from the Lord, and we would naturally then say, yeah, we're going to go reach French people. But the reality of Paris is is much more complicated than that. Uh, The world is truly flowing into this city more and more every year. And so just look at our our house church, which, you know, on, on an average Sunday, we're looking at 25, 20, 25 people. In that, in that house church, we do have some French people, but we have Pete and Angie, who are American, and Philip and Carol Ann, who are British, and Betty, who's uh, from Guadeloupe, uh, Sala from Iraq, and uh, the Rakota Sons, a sweet family from Madagascar. And I would say that the average evangelical church uh, in Paris is about half African or more. And so you have this dynamic where a lot of the people flowing into Paris are coming from cultures and contexts where their hearts are actually much more open to the gospel, or they are already believers coming in. And so the church environment there in Paris is incredibly global, incredibly diverse. And as you can imagine, with diversity, uh, sometimes comes struggle, but also comes great blessing. And we really feel like what we get to see is the promises of Revelation 7-9, you know, fleshed out with everything that we do. This idea of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation gathering around the throne of the Lord and worshiping him. And it's something worth highlighting because that globalism, that uh, idea that the world getting smaller and people becoming more mixed, it's, it's happening everywhere. It's happening here too. Um, you know, my, my parents still living in Bluffton, Indiana, where I grew up, that's like an hour and a half, hour, 40 minutes from here. Um, over the last five or six years, there's been an influx of these Burmese families moving to Bluffton. And now 
my dad goes to work every day um, with these Burmese guys uh, doing the job right alongside him. And so this, uh, what we see in Paris, we see is just a little further down the same timeline that Rush Slovenia is on, that the world is mixing more and more and becoming more and more global in that sense. And then the third category is one where we really feel like we're on the same timeline with you guys, but just further down the road. Paris, in its backdrop, is post-Christian. It's a post-Christian context. And I want to explain this for two reasons. One, because I think it is misunderstood a lot of times. And two, when you understand what a post-Christian culture is, it really helps you to turn on the news and identify what is going on? What is, have you felt like that a lot this last year? Like, what is happening? Well, if you understand the effects of post-Christianity, I really think this will help you turn on the news and say, oh, I see what's happening now. So post-Christianity is not a culture that has just decided to leave Jesus behind. And they've just forgotten him, and he's no longer influential, and, and they're just done. That's not what post-Christianity is. That, I would say, if you had a culture that truly forgot Jesus, and we've seen this throughout history, you know, with places like the Middle East, which used to be the heartland for the church, where he's now completely gone and forgotten, we don't call those post-Christian cultures. We call that a pre-Christian culture. They're now once again waiting for the church to come in. No, a post-Christian culture is a culture that's still very much in relationship with Jesus and with God and with his church. But that relationship has turned poisonous and they've turned to their Lord and rejected him. That's what a post-Christian culture is. And so let me give you some examples of this just to help you see what this looks like. So when the church comes in and affects and shapes a culture, there are certain ideals which naturally bleed into the rest of the culture, even for those people who never become believers, because the impact of the Holy Spirit and the impact of the word in, in a culture it becomes massive and unstoppable. And so what you see in Christianized cultures, cultures where the church has had great influence, all of a sudden the entire culture, not just the church, the entire culture starts to have an ideal that love is important, right? Love is a high ideal. We believe that God is love. We believe that he loves us greatly. For God so loved the world, he sent his only son. But eventually what happens when it turns to post-Christianity is the surrounding culture looks at that and says, we like the love thing, and we're going to keep that. But the God who gave that to us, we're going to try to get rid of him. And so instead of accepting love on his terms, and instead of accepting his definition of what love is, we're going to start trying to do the love thing on our terms. And we're going to start defining that for ourselves. And so something I've noticed a lot since I've been in the States are these t-shirts that say, love is love, and they have the rainbow across them, because we have a culture that's decided to embrace love as an ideal of over-sexualization, and to completely manipulate what God gave to us, and try to handle this love thing without him. See, post-Christianity is not a forgetfulness of God, it's a rejection of him. It's saying, I want all the blessings of the kingdom, but I no longer want the king. And so we see this happening with love. We see this happening with justice. We see this happening with generosity. All of these ideals that are only parts of Christian cultures because of the impact of the kingdom. And they're attractive and they're wonderful. But you can't have them 
without their source. And so a post-Christian culture is a place where they're trying to keep that kingdom without the vibrant life, life source that is Jesus that initially brought it into the culture. And so that is so, so strongly what we see happening in France, but we also believe that that is more and more the case for places like here in Ohio. In fact, my friend Brett, uh, who served in Germany for 10 years, says that post-Christianity is like a tsunami that originated in Europe, and now it's crashing on the shores of America, and the water's flowing inland. And you can see that with the cultures of the East and West Coast and how it's bleeding um, into places like here in the Midwest. And so post-Christianity is what happens when a culture that has strong ties to the influence of the kingdom tries to take the blessings of those kingdoms and accept them on their own terms and not God's terms. And this is one of the reasons where I think our churches today and then we as individual believers need to be spending a lot of time in the Old Testament because what could be more prevalent to us than a group of people who are devoted to God and, have, and are his kingdom and have special blessings from him, but continually struggling to keep those on God's terms and consistently trying to grab them and wrestle them up on his terms. We consistently see in the Old Testament this idea of the kingdom of God wanting the fruits of that kingdom, but not really wanting God as their king. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to spend some time in the Old Testament, and we're going to look at two stories of Moses and see how they connect and see how this goes wrong when we don't accept the Lord on his terms and we don't relate to him on his, ter- his terms, but we try to insert our terms. But I think it's really interesting and really prevalent that um, you guys are taking a group of teens to Gatlinburg in the winter because that's actually where my family and I spent the last week. Uh, my parents got a cabin down there in Pigeon Forge, and my brother's family and my family uh, were there as well, and we were able to have just a wonderful family time after having not been together like that in a few years. And, uh, you know, having grown up in the very, very flat uh, region of this country, northern Indiana, I love mountains. Like, they just put me in awe. You know, but there was this moment this week where we were standing and looking up, and I just told Jessica, like, it's kind of menacing. Like, it's a little scary just to see the enormity of it and to stand at its foot. And that kind of is a perfect reminder of the situation in Exodus 32 and 33. You see, God had led the people out of Egypt across the Red Sea through the desert and brought them to Mount Sinai. And he told them, wait at the base of the mountain. Don't come up here. My presence is up here. Don't do that. But Moses came up the mountain. And there's this time where they just had to stay at the base of the mountain, this menacing figure above them, covered in what I imagined to be smoke and fire and lightning. It, it was enough to put fear into their hearts to be there, and they couldn't handle it. They could not wait out the Lord. They could not wait for Moses to come back. And so they turned to Aaron, who was left as the leader in Moses' stead, Moses' brother, and they said, you need to, to make um, an idol for us. You need to craft a God for us. Because you see, when Moses had first come to them and said, I have a message from the Lord, you know, their question, well, who's the Lord? Which, which God are you talking about? 
And God had already given Moses the answer. Tell them, I am who I am. That's kind of God's way of saying, you don't get to define me. I am who I am. I will take whatever form I need to do my will. This is going to happen on my terms. Well, at the base of the mountain, they could no longer accept that arrangement. We need a God that we can define on our terms. And so Aaron collects their golden jewelry. And as Aaron tells Moses later, he says, Moses, I don't know what happened. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. But what happened was he bowed to the will of the people who could no longer accept God on his terms. They needed a God on their terms. And if you're the one creating it and you're choosing the image, then it gets to happen the way you define it. And so Moses is up there on the mountain and God tells him, those people, they're up to some sin and I'm not happy about it. And Moses says, don't get too angry with them. You've brought us all the way here. Let me go down. And so just after Moses kind of telling God, don't be too angry about this, Moses goes down. He sees the calf. He sees the dancing and the revelry of them worshiping a non-existent false god. And what's Moses' reaction? He gets angry, and he gets really angry at these people. But as we think about the anger in this story and why did this story happen, we need to connect this story with an earlier story in Exodus. We need to go all the way back to Exodus 3 and 4 and and remember Moses' story at the burning bush because it is directly connected to this story here. Because you see, when Moses went to investigate that bush that was burning and, and, and see, and he found that that was the Lord and his presence was there and he had to take his shoes off. And then the Lord had a simple command. It wasn't a request, it was a command. You will go to the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and you'll bring my people out. And Moses didn't want to do it. In fact, he gave God four excuses and God kept, kept working with Moses saying, listen, I'm going to be with you. This is fine. Listen, we can do this. Listen, okay, I'll even give you, you know, you, you think you're worried they're going to ask who I am. Well, tell them, here's my name, Yahweh. I am who I am. Oh, but what if they don't believe me still? Well, here, here's a sign. Stick your hand in your pocket. Come out, it's sick. Stick it back, it's clean. Throw your staff down. You know, God is working with Moses every single way he can to get Moses just to say yes and to go be faithful. And finally, Moses stares into the bush and says, I do not want to do this. For the first time in the Bible, there in Exodus 4, God is described as angry. It's the first time in the Bible that God is described as angry when Moses looks straight in the bush and tells him, I know what you're telling me to do, and I don't want to do it. And it says, the Lord became angry He didn't lash out at Moses, though. In his anger, in a moment of anger, the Lord says to Moses, listen, your brother's coming. He can help you. So when we see that the context of Aaron's appointment to be Moses' right-hand man is in the moment where Moses is, is extremely unfaithful and the Lord is angry, are we supposed to look at Aaron and say, we're so excited that you're here? I don't think that's the way we're supposed to read it. And so then, when Moses comes down the mountain, the thing that makes him angry 
is that he's seeing the results of not saying yes to God right away. He's seeing the results of Aaron being left in charge. And he's seeing that he is the cause of this. Now, whether he fully understood in the moment or not, I don't know. But Moses wrote Exodus, and it's clear that he's connecting. He figured it out eventually. Because you see, all the way back at the bush, Moses had the same struggle the people did. God, your terms are that I'm going to go talk to Pharaoh. Number one, he wants to kill me. And number two, I don't speak so good. How about we forget your terms, God? Let's talk about my terms. How about you send my brother? She see, this issue of on whose terms are we operating is so central to the struggles of our world today and so, strength, uh, so central to our struggles as the church, as the kingdom of God to make an impact in the cultures that we find ourselves. God's terms are the only terms for which success can be found. And so whether you think about this story and you relate to Moses standing before the bush and God's calling you to something and you really don't want to say yes, I think you can relate to that. Or whether you think about those people trembling at the base of the mountain, it's an image that's been stuck in my mind because you know what? There were mornings this past year where I woke up and we were not allowed to leave our house unless we filled out a government permission slip. And we weren't allowed to go more than a kilometer away just to take a walk. And then we'd say, well, I guess we'll turn on the TV. And we turn on French news and we watch videos of American cities burning. And I got to tell you, the emotions that I felt in the midst of that craziness, I imagine were very similar to the people at the foot of the mountain saying, what is happening? What are we waiting for? Why is it like this? And we go searching for things to do. But you see, just like the people at the base of the mountain, we are called to wait. This is part of the power of being told that Jesus is coming back. It means that part of our calling as the church is to wait patiently. And when all the people around us are looking up at the mountain and panicking, we look at it and say, this is exactly what we're asked to do. That's not a mountain on fire. That's a God in control. We wait upon the Lord. But it's not a passive waiting. The idea of waiting in the original Hebrew is so active, so active. And so we wait in faithfulness. We wait by devoting ourselves to prayer. We wait by adhering to Scripture at every corner of our lives. We wait by throwing ourselves into fellowship as the church. We wait by talking to our coworkers about Jesus. We wait by sharing this hope since we know what's happening in the midst of all the craziness. That is how we wait, and we do it patiently, and we do it knowing that no matter how far gone a culture may be, be it that they've never known Jesus, or be it that they've stared him in the eyes and rejected him, we wait knowing that we worship the God of new life, and he can renew that culture again. And that's why we continue to push and to send people and to trust the Lord. We wait with patience. We wait with a commitment to holiness. And this is not just doing good things. Holiness means to be cut apart and set 
aside. And this is what's so frustrating about God. He's the ultimate picture of holiness. And it's why it never works to put our relationship with him on our terms. Because he is other and he is separate. We can only do it on his terms. And that's how we need to define holiness for our lives. Setting ourselves aside by the terms of the Lord. But this is what's happening all around us. Our culture is separating itself from the Lord, and we're getting more and more uncomfortable with what we're being called to do in the midst of it. And so we try to connect with the culture to reach it. But the danger of a post-Christian culture is so different than the danger of a place like Iraq or like the Philippines. The danger of a post-Christian culture is that when you try to create an on-ramp for the culture to come to your church, you actually create an off-ramp from your church to the culture. And you allow them to define it. And you say, you know what? Maybe love is love. And maybe if somebody's loving somebody else, I shouldn't say anything against that. And it's a slippery slope that drags people away. And so we have to remain holy and set apart. And just as Travis and Rochelle are going to land in France tomorrow and realize, or yeah, they will land tomorrow the way that works, and wake up the next day and realize, I'm in a place where I don't feel like I totally belong. That's how each of you should feel in Rushsylvania, Ohio. Because this culture is slipping away from putting its terms with the Lord's. And then finally, we wait with faithfulness because there will be moments in the midst of it when God pulls us aside and says, pulls us aside and said, now it's your turn. It's your burning bush moment. That family across the street, they are ready. Bring them donuts and share the gospel. It's time to say yes. It's time to say yes to the Lord. We wait with that kind of purposeful faithfulness. And so as we wait, and as we find ourselves at the base of the mountain, I just want to close by reading Psalm 99 to you, a powerful psalm. Um, It's my proclamation to you and for the church, both here and in France. It's also my prayer that its words would be true in our hearts. So let me read Psalm 99 to you. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. And the king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. Our Lord, our God. You answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Amen. Do you stand and join us? Give thanks to the Lord our God and King.
stick around and say hi to them before you take off. That would be great. Um, and um, I'd like to pray and, and send us off. Come on, Jesus, thank you for allowing us to have this time this morning for worship and for learning and, um, and for just being together. Um, please be with us as we uh, go home and uh, have uh, safe travels and look forward to meeting together again next week. In Jesus' name.